Well, good morning, guys. Hope you had a good week so far. We are going to be in uh, our second part of Spiritual Gifts. So we're going to be on page uh, 143. And uh, hopefully the homework you had last time was uh, was edifying. If not, we're actually going to go over that section a little bit later. I, I pointed it out to you because... Uh, usually there's a lot of questions about um, whether specific gifts are uh, continuing even right now or whether they actually ceased at the completion of the, of the, the, the greatest uh, New Testament uh, gifts, which is the, uh, the scriptures, completion of the, of the canon. And everything that we're talking about from spiritual gifts as we pointed out in 1 Corinthians 12, is really not about you or me taking a spiritual gifts test. What do you like to do? What's your hobbies? What's your personality? It's all about the church. So um, Christ is building his church. You're, you're part of that. And the Spirit of God has given you a specific supernatural ability to be able to pour into, uh, pour into the church. So uh, like we normally do, uh, we'll open to Psalm, what is today, 10? Psalm 10. We'll read that, we'll pray, uh, then we'll watch a little video. This one is really short, it's only about a minute uh, and a half long, Steve Lawson, uh, and it's from the Strange Fire Conference that MacArthur did several years ago. If you want a, a full-blown uh, indoctrination on uh, the issues and the evils of Pentecostalism and the Word of Faith movement and all of that, and really why there's why it's an issue. It's not just about Benny Hinn getting, you know, another Lear jet. It, it's about the sufficiency of Scripture. It's an attack on the gospel and an attack on the Bible. If you want to to, to really immerse yourself uh, in that, I would highly recommend you going out and um, uh, googling or whatever search engine you use. Strange Fire. All of those. Uh, uh, all those sermons are, are available out there. Conrad Mabwewe was part of that. Uh, Conrad is uh, is pastor in um, in Zambia, uh, where Vodibakum is, where the Killians are at. So we have uh, two of our own family over there with Conrad. Conrad is just solid as a rock. They call him the African Spurgeon. Um, he's in the middle of uh, of, of all kinds of craziness in Africa, you know, Pentecostalism, the perversions, uh, you know, reign in South America and in Africa because, frankly, they, they, it's an easy transition uh, from, you know, African paganism and, uh, you know, all of the paganism that goes on in South America to a Pentecostal type of, you know, of, of movement, mystical uh, things. Conrad's right in the middle there, uh, just a... Tr- Tremendous, uh, tremendous guy. There's a number of other folks, but uh, highly recommend that uh, that conference uh, to you. Justin Peters is another guy that is great. Um, he has uh, cerebral palsy, and uh, he actually bought into in the beginning the Word of Faith movement uh, to try to be healed, and just just saw through it. And um, the Lord's used him in a tremendous way. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, I think, even speaks at the Strange Fire Conference, uh, you know, just about uh, setting people up for 
if you don't have enough faith, that's the reason God hasn't healed you, and perfect healing is always part of the gospel. So this is not just about, you know, we're Baptists and the guys down the road are Methodists and, you know, they're, they're these others. As we, we've talked the last two, you know, two Tuesdays, there are people that are, that are believers. They, they have the gospel. Uh, they're, just, they're just misled. Um, then there are others that are falling into this category. I mean, I don't believe Benny Hinn's a believer, you know, any more than Satan is. And it's a false gospel. And so you have to separate those, you know, the, those two. Uh, but, you know, you still come back to the, to the only rule of faith that we have, which is, you know, the scriptures. And um, that's what confirms what we do or what, uh, what anybody does. So if you want even more uh, on any of that, Strange Fire Conference is great. Justin Peters on the Word of Faith uh, movement. Kenneth Copeland, you know, those, those kinds of, uh, of guys. Those are Second Peter false teachers and, um, and Jude, you know, false teachers that you need to call out by name, you know, and, uh, and avoid. Um, so we're going to watch this little video by Steve Lawson, which I really think encapsulates um, what is the issue uh, of continuing revelation. Does God still speak today? Uh, whether that's in visions and dreams, most of you all don't believe in visions and dreams, where you'll fall to the temptation of the still small voice or God giving you some type of directional prompting during the day, confusing your intuition or your conscience for the Holy Spirit, and then begin to build your entire Christian life on, you know, on these internal promptings rather than the objective truth of Scripture, which requires you to know how to rightly divide it to, you know, to, to be able to put it into, you know, put it into practice. So. Um, that's what Lawson's gonna, gonna really just give us a, a potent dose in about a, a minute and a half, and then we'll get into uh, our, our lesson that's that's talking about um, the two types of gifts: uh, speaking gifts, serving gifts, and then the two phases in which uh, gifts were uh, were given for the you know, for the New Testament church. We'll finish that up today, and um, then next week uh, is just leaving it all on the field uh, for the church. So Psalm 10, if you would. We read Psalm on the day. Today's the 10th of November, believe it or not. And we do not know who penned this psalm from a human standpoint. Notice there's no superscription there. There's no introduction um, a number of them have that, like a Psalm of David. This one does not. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You ever felt like that? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him as his thoughts are. There is no God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of sight. 
as for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. He, his eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches and bows down and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. What a fitting psalm in our day. Let's pray. Father, every time I read the Bible, I'm reminded that there is nothing new under the sun. How um, the wicked, those who are outside of Christ, the wicked, um, what we were before you graciously in your mercy opened our eyes. How the wicked, you describe in your word, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They're deceived and deceiving others and that comes out in their life. And they believe that you do not see your arm is short. Um, whenever they have temporary successes, when consequences don't immediately come, that emboldens them in their arrogance. And as Psalm 2 says, you sit in the heavens and, and laugh. Um, you will bring judgment. You, their plans will fail. Even though it looks temporarily that they are succeeding. You have not forsaken your people, Lord. You have not forsaken us. Um, we have the most precious gift there ever was, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have copies of your word in here this morning so we can hear your voice at any time and be strengthened. What a precious gift you've given us. Teach us, Lord, from your word. Fill our hearts with your, your joy Empower us by your spirit this morning. Help us to serve your church and proclaim the gospel in all the different directions we go. We ask it all and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to watch a little video from Steve. Well, the Reformation was a crisis of authority. By what manner do you say what you say? 
And in the Reformation, it was a coming back to the written word of God. And that's where we stand right now. And we as cessationists firmly believe that the only authority in the life of the local church is the lordship of Jesus Christ mediated by his written word. And as soon as we take one step out of his written word, we're, we're on less than thin ice. We, we, we have nothing to stand on. I mean, how can we stand on someone's dreams or visions or uh, supposed private revelations? And so the, the comparison between the 16th century and the 21st century is that the only place to stand is upon the written word of God, and that is the crux of this entire matter. So the question was, what uh, sola scriptura, what, did, what do the reformers have in common with what, what we believe and do today? And, and, um, and the point obviously is, the only place that you can stand is the, you know, is the scriptures. Now let me challenge you, as soon as we say that, because you'll probably say, Amen. You know, we believe the Bible, we don't believe in visions and dreams, and otherwise we stand within the Word and only in the Word. And if that's true, then the question you have to turn and ask yourself is, so then to what extent are you dedicating yourself to knowing the Word on a daily basis and being able to, to apply it? So it's not just carrying your Bible around, it's actually reading your Bible, you know, imbibing your Bible and allowing it to transform you. So if you find your heart being tempted to be lifted up uh, for those that, that uh, you know, don't understand that the only place that you find revelation is in the scriptures, then, then there's always a way to humble yourself. So we're on page 143, and we're talking about um, exercising spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his promise. He's doing that today. We talked last week about how the book of Acts doesn't end. It's, it's still going. Uh, the skeletal system of the book of Acts is the Great Commission. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And it started in Jerusalem with Peter and John. Then it transitioned in the book of Acts to Paul. And uh, Paul's three missionary journeys, and it goes from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, and the gospel is still going forward. And as the gospel goes forward, Jesus is building his church. And he's building his church through the gospel. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon the profession, the confession that Peter made, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus is building his church through the gospel. As the gospel is proclaimed... The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit of God convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He, he opens the eyes. He convicts of sin. He regenerates. He, he grants faith and repentance, and then Christ gathers his church. Well, what happens to the church after they're gathered? Well, Jesus has given gifts to those inside the church that then edify the saints. So the saints can do, that's you, to do the work of the ministry through your spiritual gifts so then the bride of Christ can be matured. So the bride of Christ is being completed by the gospel going out, the Great Commission, and then the bride of Christ is being purified and edified and, com and uh, sanctified internally through the spiritual gifts that God has you know, given you. So we talked about how there were, uh, there were apostles and prophets, and they laid the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, Christ 
coming and dying in the gospel. He's the cornerstone according to Ephesians 2.20. And then the apostles and prophets were a select group of people during a distinct period of time, and they laid the foundation of the church. And then those building on that foundation are the evangelists and pastor teachers, or pastors and teachers, according to Ephesians 4. So they're building on the foundation that, that's, been, that's been laid, and that's what's happening uh, you know, today. So evangelists would be not the guy who comes around you know, once in the spring and once in the fall and does revival meetings. An evangelist is a missionary, somebody who goes outside of the church, proclaims the gospel where it hasn't been you know, proclaimed, and their role is to really gather an assembly through proclamation of the gospel. People be saved, and they're, they're, they're planting a local church. And then once that church is planted, then that local new local church or that new church is, is then rooted in basic doctrine, and then out of that maturing process that happens after the church is gathered, then God raises up elders and God raises up deacons and then it's handed off to those pastor teachers and, and deacons being servants. And, and then that church is matured and then as it matures even further, then now they're sending out missionary evangelists to do, you know, to do the same thing. And, and so you're planting gospel fountains all over the, all over the world and that's really... Uh, uh, the biblical plan for for the for the gospel. So what what happens inside um, the church? There are two primary types of gifts according to First Peter four: speaking gifts, one I'm exercising this morning, and serving gifts, one that somebody exercised when they brought you the brought you the coffee, and um, then within those two broad categories. They're giftings that fall under those, those two categories. So you have two, um, two periods in which these, these specific gifts are being used. You have some gifts that pass away when the foundation is complete, Scripture being Revelation, New Testament Revelation being the, you know, the ultimate uh, completion of the foundation. Uh, apostles and prophets are operating until the, the canon, the New Testament, is complete. We don't have anybody speaking Revelation today. We don't have any New Testament books. Um, people are writing blog articles, and some of those are really helpful and really good, but none of those are revelatory. They're, they're explanatory. You know, they're explaining Scripture that we already have. So you have two periods. You have the gifts that pass away. And in that period of gifts that pass away, you have uh, apostolic gifts, uh, prophetic gifts, sign gifts that confirmed this is what God's doing in laying the foundation. And then you have another period, which is the um, some that remain. And those that remain are then building on that, on that foundation. Speaking gifts, serving gifts, some gifts pass away. Some, some gifts uh, continue. And so that's what we're looking at, a list of more specifically identified spiritual gifts. So what falls under the two categories of speaking gifts and serving gifts? And that's where we find ourselves on page 143, the list of more specifically identified spiritual gifts. So Romans 12, 6 through 8 is our, is our text, and you can open there if, uh, if you want to. You can follow along in your book. 
Romans 12, 6 through 8. This is not the only place that the New Testament speaks about spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4, we've already looked at that. They gave the broad categories. Now, here in Romans is a section that goes in more, more detail. Um, if you would, at verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then, just like in 1 Corinthians, it goes from spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as you know. Watch how Paul does the same thing here in Romans. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and, and, and so on. So Paul does the same thing here in Romans. If you would back up earlier in Romans 12, what does Romans 12 start with? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? Because of these mercies. What mercies? The first 12 chapters, that you're a sinner and that Jesus came and justified you and sanctified you and that God is sovereign. 12 chapters of that doctrine. And because of those mercies... Therefore, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God. It's your reasonable service, meaning that it's logical. It's what you do. You don't offer dead animals. You offer yourself, all of you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the Romans 12, 2, you don't, you're not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Paul was talking to us about last week in in Philippians, and then he's given specific gifts for the body. So about the body. And now he's talking about that grace that's given to you. You exercise. There's one body. There's many members. Um, and it was those gifts were given for the body, and you're exercising that in love. It's a loving thing to do to exercise your spiritual gift, and your gift is all about using it for others, not for not for self-consumption. So what about this list that where you know Paul identifies some spiritual gifts here? It's not an all-encompassing list. But Paul identifies the sign gifts in the early church first and some gifts that continue today second. So we talked about the apostolic era. There are no apostles today. Ephesians 2.20, they laid the foundation. Um, Jude 3 talks about the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, the faith. So there's the, the concept there in Jude that there's a completion of doctrine, of, of new covenant truth, so that doesn't continue. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul says that he was the last apostle. So you have in Acts uh, chapter 1, the replacement, a replacement apostle for Judas. And then Paul says he's the last apostle. And then you also have in Acts 12, James, who was an apostle who wasn't replaced. So when you put all that together, you see the apostles are, are for a distinct 
period of time, the revelatory uh, offices. Uh, and um, like the prophets of old, they were tested by their accuracy in Scripture, and they laid the, the foundation. So those are the ones that are gone for that distinct period of time. What about gifts throughout the church age, though? There are categories of gifts listed in general terms, and the gifts are distributed by God in a multitude of unique ways and are often exercised in combination. So when you look at the list, you don't say, well, do I have this or do I have that? You may have all of these. You may have a few of these. They may be exercised at distinct periods of, of time. But, but look at the first one on the list here in verse 7. He says the gift of service. Um, after apostolic gifts and prophetic gifts, and then 7, if service, then you exercise that gift in serving. What is the gift of, of serving? Before I even describe it, can you think of somebody in this church that you would think they have the gift of serving? You just recognize that they serve all of the time. I said when we were talking on Sunday, whenever I heard the word or uh, read the word in Philippians about being dignified, I thought of men, specific men in the church that you know, that are sober-minded, they're, they're well-rounded, they're mature, they're models of dignity. Um, you probably think of some folks in the church that, that serve. So I wouldn't name them. Maybe you think of some. Don't just think of men. I can think of some women. That's all they do. Like every time there's something going on, you're going to see them there serving. And they, they delight to do that. It's not like, you know, when somebody asks you to do something, you say, let me check my calendar. You know, or they say, wow, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do it because, you know, Matt asked me to do something with children's ministry, like the fall festival coming up, and, but I'd rather do something else with my, you know, with, with my Saturday. That, that's not, I mean, everybody has those kinds of feelings because you're busy, but, but somebody who feels that way consistently probably doesn't have the gift of serving. You know, somebody who has the gift of serving is looking for those opportunities. They make themselves available. The word is the same word for deacon. It's a diakonos. Um, it's, a, it, it's someone who kicks up the dust, someone who waits on tables. The idea about the, the word diakonos is, is they're, they're busy. They busy themselves in, in serving you know, others. Now, the Bible uses the term that we get the word deacon in two ways. It uses it as an adjective and uses it as a, you know, as a, as a noun in, in, in an office. So Jesus called himself um, a deacon, used that, that term. The apostles used the same term. Here's the term used as somebody who has the gift of, of, of serving. Um, so... What does it mean, you know, to, to serve? Well, let me, let me say this. Every Christian is required to serve. I mean, that's part of being a believer. You serve. You're a minister. 
You lay down your life for others. You give your life away. So everybody in here is called to serve with, with, this, with this capacity. Then there are some that serve so well and their lives uh, are, are, are lives of, of godly character that accompany that service. They do that so consistently, they're recognized by the congregation and set apart as model servants. So, so serve, everybody serve, but you want to see what it really looks like, follow these guys right here. These are the ones that, that serve the church in an excellent way, and they have these marks of faithfulness that, that are there. Uh, then there's the gift of service. And the, someone who has the gift of service or serving here could fall into either of those categories. You don't have to be a deacon and have that, that gift, but more than likely, if you are a deacon, you're going to have this gift if you're, if you're operating as a, you know, as a, as a biblical uh, deacon. Um, it's, the, it, it's similar to the gift of helps, and it, had a, it has a very broad... Uh, application um, simply means to to lend hand to to be busy uh, about uh, pouring out your life um, you know for others you don't have to go to seminary and know how to rightly divide the word in order to 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 serve in in that capacity um, it is a, but it's a gift that's a supernatural uh, ability. There's supernatural desires that go along with these gifts. I, I desire to do this. I get spiritual energy from doing this, and other people are supernaturally helped by the the serving and the gift uh, of uh, of service. Corresponds with the gifts in First Peter four eleven, speaking gifts and and serving gifts. So service. Look at the second one on the list there, teaching. There's the gift of teaching. Now, 1 Timothy 3 gives the qualifications of an elder or an overseer, a pastor. The New Testament uses all those same words. And in that list, there are character qualities. And I, again, I would say to you, the list of character qualities in 1 Timothy 3, every Christian should have. Um, you should be striving to be a one-woman man. You should be striving to, to not be you know, a, a brawler. You should be striving for those character qualities. But in the life of someone set apart by the church as, a, as an overseer, as a pastor, as an elder, they must be there. And what must be there are, are distinct marks of, of, of these character qualities. And you've probably heard me say before, they're not perfections, they're directions. So if I would stand back, just kind of zoom out and look at Pastor Brody's life. Pastor Brody's not here, so I can use him as an example. When I zoom out and look at his life as a whole, I'm going to see these character qualities in his life jutting up like, like, like a mountain range. If I zoom in too close on Pastor Brian's life, you're going to find faults and flaws because these aren't perfections. But if you stand back and look at my life as a whole, you should see these character qualities in my life, and they're required to be observable for, you know, for an elder. One 
in that list is the ability to teach. So elders must have an ability. So everyone should be striving for these character qualities, but one of the distinct requirements for somebody who is a pastor teacher is they have to have the ability to teach. And that obviously is accompanied with the Holy Spirit. It's not only the Holy Spirit because 2 Timothy 2.15 says to study yourself, uh, to show yourself approved as a workman. 1 Timothy 3 says if any man desires the office of a bishop, it's a good thing that he aspires for. So the, the desire inside to teach and then the reaching forward, the developing of the ability to do it. So there's spiritual gifting that, that's there, implanted desires, spiritual ability to, to fulfill those desires, and then you put legs on that. Then you, you, you study, you, you labor, you learn Greek and Hebrew, you learn hermeneutics, you, you do those things, and then you begin, to, you begin to practice them. And so here's the gift of teaching. Um, you don't have to be an elder, though, to have this gift. There are plenty of Sunday school teachers or other people in the church that have speaking gifts and they're, they're teaching in, in some way. So what is the gift of teaching? It's the word group that means to put accurately, to put it accurately into the mind with implications to convict your will. Accurately into the mind with implications to convict your will. Now, now what, what does that imply? It's accurate, so it's correct according to Scripture. Um, it, it's, it, it's placed into the mind. So you can have the accuracy of the Bible. The Bible is completely accurate, but it's got to get off this page into your head, right? So what lifts it off the page and puts it into your head? Well, there's a teacher that studies it, codifies it, clarifies it, interprets it, and then serves it up. MacArthur said that, that preachers are nothing more than waiters. We don't even cook the food. We're not the chef. That's God. We have the food right here. We just get it from the kitchen to the table and get it there hot. That's, that's what he said. So don't lift yourself up if you are a pastor. All you're doing is taking God's food and you're delivering it to the table. But somebody has to deliver it, right? So there's a clarity that's there and it's placed in the mind accurately. And then what would happen if you go into, a, I've never been into a Michelin restaurant or I don't even understand all the stars. I just know that's a really fancy restaurant. So hey, five-star restaurant and you have a chef there that everybody wants to come and eat from, and you're the waiter, and he prepares the plate, and between the kitchen and the table, you decide to take it over here and put some extra spices on it yourself because you think that it, it can be improved, and it's served. What do you think the chef's going to do? Well, you probably won't be working as a waiter very long. That's what some preachers try to do when they want to add their flair, their personality, their whatever. Don't be innovative as a teacher. Tell people what's, what's existing, what's, what's old. Um, the, best, the best teachers are the ones that fade to the back. As you know, Spurgeon said, hide behind the cross. 
There was someone who, uh, two great preachers, uh, Spurgeon being one of them, or another man in London, um, and uh, someone was asking uh, a newspaper writer to compare, listening to Spurgeon, and another man who was supposed to be a, a great orator of the day. He went to listen to the great orator, uh, who was another pastor, and he said, I walked away thinking, what a great speaker. And I went to listen to Spurgeon, and I walked away and said, what a great savior. That's what you want. So a teacher makes it plain, makes it clear. The ability to interpret, clarify, systematize, explain God's truth clearly. So it's accurately, and then it's lifted off the page, it's interpreted, and it's placed in the mind and then it's with implications that will convict your will. So it's not just a data dump. You've heard that overused mischaracterization of expository preaching. Well, it's just a data dump. You're just reading a commentary to me. Well, if that's what's happening, that's not true exposition. Because exposition explains what Scripture says and then lays the implications out before you. So what? What are you going to do with that? It's a call to, to understand and, and, and obey. So there's the gift of, of teaching. It's implications that convicts your, uh, your will, that grabs you by the throat and tugs on the collar of your conscience and says you must hear, you must obey, you must see. This is God speaking. It's a teacher. Look at the third one there, exhortation. The spiritual gift of, of exhortation. In, if serving, in service, he who teaches in his teaching. And in verse 8, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. This is an enablement by the Holy Spirit to exhort the will in such a way that people are moved by the truth. Um... I think that there's probably a lot of preachers, my pastor probably, there's probably a lot of preachers that are in the independent Baptist movement that probably have this gift. Unfortunately, some of them lack the gift of teaching. <laughs> so they don't ever explain the Bible. They just exhort you to do stuff. And they're very, very capable of doing that. I'm going to tell you, when I listened to my pastor preach, I mean, he could pluck your heartstrings like nobody else. And it wasn't fake. He was the real deal. I mean, he genuinely wanted you to follow Christ. And you've probably said under people that just have the ability to just reach into your conscience and lay hold of it and tug it. It's an exhorter. Um, the ability to call others to obey and follow God's truth whether that is corrective or, or whether that is positive in encouragement. You ever met somebody that is, can just encourage you or you're down? That's an exhorter. Exhort you to get up. It, it's okay. You know, There's hope in Christ. And when you're done talking to them, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, there is. I, I can do this. It's, a, it's the gift of exhortation you know, coming up. There are other exhorters, though, that, that can point their proverbial finger of God at you, and it presses right on your heart negatively. 
they exhort you, they correct you, and you you receive it. I can remember uh, one man who, the guy who discipled me, not my pastor, but the other man. He's pastoring today in Texas. And uh, he was called to a little Southern Baptist church in Charleston, West Virginia, and they brought the new pastor as the SBC to a, a little regional thing they were doing, like a volleyball tournament. And they asked him if he would come and do a, a five-minute devotional. And he shows up. Nobody knows who he is. And you got everybody there, and it's a fun, you know, outdoor thing, and he's going to come and do a little devotional. You know, and they're thinking little encouraging, flowery, you know, thing. And he's from Texas. And, uh, he moved to West Virginia, now he's back in Texas. And so he's got that Texas, you know, what you would think of a Texan anyway. And he comes in, and he stands in the middle of the sand there, and everybody's listening, and they're thinking they're going to get a little devotional. And he said, they asked me to do a devotion. I don't do devotions, I preach. And then he just launches. And ten minutes later, there are about six or seven people, you know, that are there in tears, coming to Christ. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was one of those moments. And uh, the folks seem to be converted, as far as as far as we know. I mean, they continued in the, you know, in the church. He's a guy that you know is like E. F. Hutton spiritually. Whenever he spoke, you just you just want to listen to what you know to what he said. He just had that that type of of uh, of, of clarity. Um, if you've ever heard the story of John Calvin, the reluctant reformer, I know everybody when they think of Calvin, they think of uh, the system of theology, but Calvin was a tremendous expositor uh, and a pastor, and Calvin wanted didn't want to enter the Reformation. And he, on a fateful night, he, he couldn't go a certain way to get, in, uh, to get into France, and he had to go through Geneva, so he overnights in Geneva, and he meets a man there named William Farrell, pretty good name as far as I'm concerned. And William Farrell is, is an exhorter, and he knows that he doesn't have the theological horsepower to carry the, the Reformation along. He needs Calvin's brains and so he's smart enough to know his own weakness. It's a good quality to have. And he's smart enough to know that Calvin has it. And so he's trying to convince Calvin to enter the Reformation. And um, Calvin says to him, I cannot stay. He's trying to convince him to stay in Geneva. I need quiet. I must um, study undisturbed. That was Calvin's response to Farrell's appeal. And Farrell says to him, May God curse you and your studying if you do not join me here in the work that he has called you to. And Calvin, visibly shaken, responds, I will remain in Geneva. I give myself to the Lord's good pleasure. That's an exhorter. Um, Moved by the truth. It's an enablement of the Holy Spirit to exhort the will in such a way that people are moved by the truth. And you need teachers, and you need somebody who will encourage you and somebody who will correct you. Look at the third one, or not the third one, the fourth one. Giving. The gift of, of giving. He who gives 
with liberality. Now, now watch this in, in Romans 12. Um, here's prophecy to exercise according, if prophecy. If service, in his serving. He who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. What do you notice there? He just basically repeats the gift, but puts an ING on it. In, give the gift of service, in serving. Exhorting, the gift of exhortation, in exhorting. Watch how he shifts here, because it's going to help you define if you have the spiritual gift of, of giving. He who gives with liberality. Um, it's, a, it's a definition of the gift. Now, like serving, every one of you in here, you're commanded by God to give. And this is not just money. Money is obviously part of it, but you're, you're commanded as a believer to give. You're commanded to give where you're fed. So you, to the extent, I mean, the way, that, the way the gospel goes forward and ministry happens in the church and out of the church is, is you give where, where you're fed, and, and you, you do that here. It's not time to get into... You know, is there a New Testament tithe or, you know, or, or not? But everybody in here is commanded to give. Everybody gets, gets that. Give of your, of your time and your talent and your resources and however that's been, been summarized. But if you have the spiritual gift of giving, you give with liberality. And, and what, does that, what does that mean? Well, look at what it says here. The giver blesses and loves the church through the sacrificial nature of their giving. It's the idea of liberality. So it's the sacrificial sharing of one's resources. This is not giving big amounts per se, but the nature of the giving, giving that matters, giving that's sacrificial. I can remember a woman named Arlene church that I was saved in, and she was older, she was a widow, and when we had testimony time, Arlene was one of the first ones to stand up, and she would start out very clear, and then she would trail off, and then she would mumble, and everybody, when, when Arlene stood up, there were people in the church that tuned out because the pastor would have to graciously figure out how to talk Arlene off the speaking ledge. I mean, she would just go on and on and on and on and on. She was lonely. She didn't have a family around. She needed somebody to talk to, but she was there every time the doors were open. She was a believer, and she was a, a sweet woman. And most of her testimony had to do with praise for God. It wasn't, you know, talking about, well, you know, last week, you know, Uncle Joe came around. I mean, it was... It was talking to, to Christ. And I can remember when I was leaving to go here, Liberty. I believe this was the context. The church took up a love offering for, for Tracy and I. And I am still a VP at Anthem. And I make very good money. And I didn't need that money. And one of the things that the Lord had to do in my heart was, was humble me through gifts because I'm self-made and self-sufficient and this is my attitude and I don't need anything from anybody. And so the Lord had to break me from that. And he used Arlene in one way. 
And at the very end of the service, she comes up and gives me a $20 bill. Now, this is a woman that we had to send deacons in to make sure that she turned her heat on in the winter because she was that frugal. She didn't want to turn the heat on. So, I mean, she barely has enough money. It's only Social Security. And my first response was, Arlene, I cannot take your money. You need that more than I do. You know, the Lord has provided for me. And I can remember this sweet little woman turned into like the Tasmanian devil. I mean, she, she's hunched over this way anyway. She looks up at me and she said, Don't you steal my blessing. The Lord wants me to give this. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'll take the $20. Arlene exercised the gift of giving whenever she did that. It doesn't mean that you have millions of dollars. It means that you get joy out of sacrificially giving your resources away to the church and to others. And it doesn't necessarily have to happen through, through money. If someone or something has to compel you to give, then you don't have this gift. If the only reason that you'll give is because you get really passionate about this cause, and that's why I give, you don't have the gift of giving. If someone has to give you a reason to do that, there's a tax write-off or there is a whatever, then you don't have the gift of giving more than likely, or if you do, you're stifling it. It's not necessarily through money. The blessing is the, is the, is the modeling of giving as well as the practical result of giving. You like to motivate people to give themselves away in service and in resources to the to the church. It's it's something that brings you that brings you great joy. Everyone should be giving. Um, and everyone should be giving liberally and sacrificially. You're to be a cheerful giver as a believer. Um, some people model that for us and they motivate us to do that like you know like like Arlene. Well, look at the, the fifth one there, leadership. Talking about gifts that remain. These gifts are operating today. The Verse 8, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. So, again, you have a change up here, giving with liberality and he who leads with, with diligence. Um, the word has to do with someone who's out in front, or it literally means to stand before. MacArthur says it's equated to the gift of administrations in in First Corinthians twelve twenty eight. This term is prohistemi, which is the ability to be out ahead of others. It was the word was used for. Um, Steering or guiding the ship. And um, to stand before. It's uh, natural leadership qualities are different from this. Um, we used to have a saying in, at, at, at Anthem when we were dealing with hospital CEOs. Um, Typically, the hubris that landed them in that position is the very thing that brings them down. In natural leadership, the, the ability to stand in front and 
command attention and make people follow you, for an unbeliever, that's, that's, that's usually married with arrogance or braggadocious you know, speech or otherwise. And that lifts you to the top to garner a following. And that sin is usually also what brings them down. You know, they get too big for their britches or, or otherwise. It's different. This gift, diff, gift is different from natural leadership qualities. Um, the term is the ability to be out ahead of others. The Spirit of God gives the ability to organize and to show the way. You have a situation that you don't know the way to go. It seems confusing. There's a lot of different directions that you, that you could take. And there's a group of people trying to figure that out. Someone with the gift of leadership is, is able to show the way to bring all of that together or knock those things down and say, this is the direction that we're supposed to go. And, and you go, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that, that's right. So don't think leader, leader. Um, Jesus obviously was a, was a servant. This gift has to do with the ability to organize and show the way. The, the, the dynamic is to mobilize efforts for a per, particular task. So not only is there clarity, this is the way, but they're able to mobilize people through that, through that gifting and people, people go in, in that direction. Um, thinking of Glenn Matthews when we were in Israel one time, uh, I think the first time we went there as a church, we took Glenn because he's been like 26 times and Frankly, we wanted a we wanted a pacifier, a binky, just in case we didn't know what we were doing. And, and Glenn went with us, and we were at Caesarea Philippi, and we have somebody who counts every time you get on the bus. And I'm worried about Timberlakers, and so we got on the bus and we counted all the Timberlakers, and they're all there. And I said, "Let's go." And Boaz pulls the bus away, and then he says, "Stop, stop!" And we look, and here's Glenn, you know, running through the parking lot. We left our leader. You know, behind, and he gets on the bus, and he says something to the effect of, "You know, um, how many were there? Which way did they go? I must find them, for I am their leader." And if 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 you think you're a leader and you have nobody following you, you're probably not a leader. Um, if you think that you're a shepherd and you have no sheep, you're probably not a shepherd. It's the dynamic. Uh, ability to mobilize efforts for a particular task. These may not be visible, but when the Spirit of God grips them for the work of ministry, the church benefits. Um, There are lots of people that God uses in the church. When you first take a look at them or even talk to them, you go, eh, I'm not that impressed. And then when God uses them, you go, whoa, where did that come from? I mean, they have this, this gift. You, you want to follow them. Um, plenty of people in church history you know, like that. Uh, you can use the example of, of Farrell and, and Calvin. You know, Calvin was a very malleable man. He, 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 he was very submissive. 
mean, his great desire was to study. He didn't want to be out front, and yet the Lord used him to mobilize Geneva in, a, in an effort for the gospel. Leadership may not be visible. Well, look at number six here. The gift of mercy. Gift of mercy. The gift that all husbands probably wish their wives possessed. We are called to be merciful, but this spirit-produced enablement goes beyond the level of most of us. Again, you're all called to serve. You're all called to give. To a certain degree, you're all called to be able to accurately divide the word of truth. But these are supernatural gifts that are models for us, and they're particularly uh, helpful in the in the church. And so, he who shows mercy with with cheerfulness. And does one of your uh, translations have something other than other than cheerful? I'm reading out of a NASB. What's the ESV say? Cheerfulness. Okay. Well, I think they get it. They get it right there. Um, actively shows sympathy and sensitivity to those suffering and in sorrow. And then they willingly use their resources to ease it. Somebody who has mercy would never do the James be warmed and be filled. Somebody who has mercy wants to warm and fill everybody. I mean, they just have compassion. They bleed for others. It's just natural. Do you have a hard time uh, um, associating with or contemplating or, or even thinking about how somebody else feels whenever they suffer? You probably don't have the you know don't have the gift of of mercy. Are you drawn to people in sorrow, in people in suffering? And then do you want to use your your kind words or your resources or otherwise to ease them? And you may have the gift of, of mercy. It's a spirit produced enablement. It goes beyond most of them. Um, beyond the level of, of most of us. Jesus was merciful, wasn't he? compassionate I mean I think one of the most beautiful um, pictures of that is when you have the leper crying out from a distance you know son of David have mercy on me and Jesus doesn't just say you're cleansed he goes to this leper and he touches the leper I know you've heard that before but think about that in a, in, a, in a fresh way. This is a person who hasn't been touched for who knows how long. And the reason that people wouldn't touch them is a, is a, is a legitimate reason. You don't want to catch this. You know, I know they find out later what's, what actually you know, transmits it. But they intentionally separate themselves. So Jesus doesn't just heal them. But he does it in a way that, that's merciful and tender and communicates his love. You can see that over and over. Sometimes God puts an exhorter 
right next to the merciful in a bedside ministry so that the exhorter learns. Bless God, what you need to do is just get up and do it. Yeah, that's what I need to do. You get up and do it. And then sometimes God will put somebody with the gift of mercy alongside of that person that helps that exhorter tone down a little bit and realize, hey, you know, it might not be as easy as just, what's wrong with it? Just do it. Um, the Lord blends the gifts together. In other situations, you turn the page, mercy people who don't often rebuke are placed next to exhorters in situations where they should be bold and where they may, where they may be lazy or unbelief. So you have the gift of mercy. You don't really like to inflict pain on people. You like to relieve pain. But in order to be faithful to that person, sometimes you have to inflict pain. Um... Faithful are the wounds of a friend. People that are self-deceived or want to hold on to their sin typically avoid exhorters and they run to people with the gift of mercy because the person with the gift of mercy does nothing but coddles them and, and, and loves on them and ministers to them. And so you need an exhorter to come, around, come along and kick them in the pants. And then maybe the person with the gift of mercy can come and help them pick up the pieces after the exhorter has destroyed them. <laughs> the Lord blends all these gifts together. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 are some sign and revelatory gifts that we can look at uh, next time that didn't continue with the, with the apostolic uh, era. Um, but I think your tanks are probably full, so it's five after seven. Any questions or comments on, on any of that? Did I use my gift of teaching? Is that helpful? Good. Questions, thoughts? Yeah, sure. Um, a natural leadership quality, the point there is when you think leader, you probably have an image that comes into your mind of somebody that's standing out front, that's bold, that commands attention, and you want to follow you know, that person. You want to follow them because they're, and I don't mean this in a, in, don't take this too far, but you, your, your natural inclination is to do what Israel did with Saul. You know, I'm not saying that everybody who's a natural leader is like Saul, bankrupt. But your inclination is, oh, wow, I want to follow that person because they look this way, they command attention, they, you know, they do whatever. The, the, the gift of, of, of a leader may not be a, a bold or you know, stand-up kind of, of person. They just rise in, in a situation to make things clear and they're able to show you this is the way and then they mobilize people to, to you know to go in that direction it's not like uh, you know the Pied Piper where everybody's following them you know they they just have the ability to make a situation clear that's not clear and then exhort people to go in you know in, in that direction and they're the, the first one that steps out in that direction they're the one that you know that that speaks about that 
and it just kind of resonates and echoes with with everybody else and and they they're able to do that in a you know in a consistent way you know I think of times in a plurality of elders or or in you know in our deacons meetings or leaders or, you know leadership meetings here and all of those different gifts are functioning and it's not always clear you know how do you apply this principle these principles which way do you go and somebody with the gift of leadership in there it, it will will say well I think this and you just go oh yeah I mean, that that's it you know and so they're kind of out front so that's what I'm saying don't confuse this as you know Put aside what you think about his, uh, you know, his uh, his style, but Donald Trump is a leader. Like people want to follow him. He, you know, he he's just able to shove aside all of the other stuff. You know, he's got other issues with those leadership qualities. But but you know, I'm not talking you know about about that. I'm talking about you know the, the spiritual gift. Does that help? And you were exercising the gift of mercy whenever you said you said it that way. You know, you get to say it a lot of different ways. I think the yeah, amen. I think you have desire for spiritual gift. You have desire. Uh, you know, you have uh, you, you desire to do it. Um, there's uh, you know, there's an enablement to do it, and then there's spiritual fruit. You know, or results yeah, you know, from it. Yes. Right. Hey, I've got this. Yeah. Right. Somebody else sees you operating yeah. and say, I yeah. believe you have this gift. Yeah. You know, it could be someone else's spiritual leader. Yeah. Let me help you have opportunities. Yeah. And disciple you. But kind of the, the, the role of Timothy yeah. was to find faithful men, those that. Right. Bring them 
good. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, you can learn a lot from things like that that you know that, that help you uh, and can help order your life and you know and learn discipline and, and those type of things. Um, spiritual gift of leadership is is, is even beyond that. You, know, you can be that way, or you can be somebody who doesn't have some of those qualities, but they are just able to go out front and make it plain. Yeah, the goal is to is to be like Christ. Christ being formed in you, and Christ was merciful, and Christ was out front, and Christ, you know, uh, was was able to communicate the Father's truth, and Christ. What I mean, so that's your goal. That's what everybody should strive for. The Spirit sovereignly grants you supernatural ability for the the church, and as Clay is saying, that doesn't excuse you from doing all of the other commands of Scripture to be those. Be merciful, to be compassionate, to, to do whatever. And you surely don't want to use that as an excuse for sin. I can remember one brother in particular who's not here and hasn't been here for a while. He had bought into, I think it was Bill Gothard's uh, system of, of you know, giftings. And he would say, well, I'm a prophet. Just tell it like it is. And I was like, no, you're just a rude jerk. It's what you are. You're not. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for being a jerk. You know. Um, you know. You're. You know. So, don't use it to neglect what you're commanded to do. Don't. And then don't blame God for your own. You know, sin, <laughs> um, which we sadly do on a regular. You know, regular basis sometimes. So. Yeah. It's a good word. Complete, incomplete would be highlighting one one area or another. Great. So. Father, thank you for these men, for their attention. Thank you for your truth and how clear. I pray that you'd bless them as they go out from amongst this little gathering of our church and you'd use them protect them, guard their hearts, 
help them to to think biblically, think well, um, just to think rightly, think on these things, um, guard them from the evil, and use them because there's a world out there of people that don't know Jesus, and uh, you want to save some of them. So I ask it all and your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.